Hi there, and welcome to another one of my podcasts. Over the years that I've been doing this, and I began in 2009, one of my favorite sopranos of all has been a lady called Celestina Bonisegna, who was born in 1877 and died in 1947. I think she was one of the greatest divas ever to grace the operatic stage. In her own time, however, though she had a reasonable career, I mean, she sang with Caruso, I mean, she wasn't a backwater singer, she never quite made it to the top of the tree, and that could be something to do with her personal appearance and choice of fashion when she appeared on stage as much as her actual ability. It's still the same way now, I'm afraid to say. All the really big names tended to be signed up with one recording company, such as Gallicucci, Melba, Tetrazzini, and that was usually Victor or HMV, which in those days meant the same thing in different countries. However, if you didn't quite make it to that level and your records didn't sell in their millions, then you tended to record for various companies as they all tried to sell records with as big a name as they could get. And thus it is that Bonin Senya, yes, she did record for HMV a couple of times. She did record for Columbia, but she also made some records for Pate. This was the label in Europe that still really used cylinder technology and their patents meant that their records had to be vertical groove playing records which often began in the middle and worked outwards rather than the standard 78s that we know today. This also means that it's very difficult to play these records and get a good sound out of them unless you've got a really top class perfect equipment for playing what we call Hill and Dale records. Well, one of the first recordings I played to you back in Program 3, and by the way, this is a good time to remind you that none of my podcasts are deleted. If you can spend a few minutes, you can scroll back and listen to any one of my podcasts. So way back then, Program 3, I played you Bonisegna's famous early recording in wonderful sound despite it being recorded in 1904 of the aria In Morbide which is from Puccini's Manon Lesco. This recording nevertheless was made with a piano and I recently discovered that for Pathé she recorded again probably around 1907 with the sort of primitive orchestras that were being used at that time. I found a copy of this recording which for a Pate recording is in very, very good sound, and I thought, therefore, that I'd play it to you. So this is the wonderful Celestina Boninsegna in one of her rare Pate recordings in 
And as perhaps I should have said before I played that track, you always get as a bonus on Pathé recordings because they were designed originally for cylinder inclusion, and of course cylinders don't have labels on them. You get the artists themselves most of the time announcing what they're going to sing, so you can actually hear Bonnie Senya's speaking voice. Speaking of cylinders, however, again, at previous podcast listeners will know that around New Year's Day I included as a bonus a cylinder of a little girl on a privately recorded cylinder. The reason I played it is because around that time they'd been showing that wonderful film Meet Me in St. Louis starring Judy Garland but featuring a wonderful child actress called Margaret O'Brien who I gather is still around now in her late 80s and she plays the part of a feisty full of personality little girl and the story is based around or leads up to the famous World Fair in St. Louis in 1904. What's fantastic about this privately recorded cylinder is that there's a little girl on it who could well have been the girl on whom the fictional character was based, although they probably never had heard of her. And she is actually reporting on a visit to the St. Louis Fair and what she thought of it and what she liked and didn't. And although, of course, the sound quality isn't of the best, this is so fascinating that I thought I'd play it for you on my podcast and I think I promised to do so. Well here I'm redeeming that promise and this takes us back to a privately recorded cylinder because cylinder machines allowed you to make your own recordings unlike gramophone records. Back around 1904 or 5 I find this fascinating and I hope you will too. Oh, that's the grandest thing in the 
cylinders of this young lady which perhaps I wasn't going to do but I only had the two so I thought I'd just play them both. If you can make out what she's saying you're better than I am. I can hear her own little bits but if you can and the bits I could hear I think are fascinating. The World Fair in St. Louis 1904 by somebody who went there on her sixth birthday she recorded at least the first cylinder. I just was wondering I wonder what happened to the rest of her life. She would be in her 120s if she were alive now so I can't see that being so. I wonder she probably married had children, grandchildren, who knows, great-grandchildren. But there you are. Moving on, I'm now going to play you something from the other end of the 78 era. And this time I know very little about this sort of stuff. I know that this group still exists in some form, but not obviously the original form. They are, of course, called the Drifters. They sort of specialised in close harmony, doo-wop, early R&B, soul, whatever you want to call it. And um, they originally worked with Clyde Whitfatter. And then around 1955, the very year when this was made, they lost him and they were then led by Ben E. King, who also became a name himself. So I don't know which of those lineups this is, but it's very typical of the mid-50s drifters, and it's a track recorded in 1955, as I said, called Steamboat. I talked to the captain this morning. This morning. He said we're 500 miles from shore. And if you don't get a telegram or a letter, a letter. you know that woman don't want you no more. Oh, steamboat. Woo, steamboat. Steamboat. Oh, steamboat. 
one of the greatest sopranos on record who somehow didn't quite reach the fame and success that she should have. And she was well known, but she wasn't preeminent. Another singer for whom that sort of thing could be said is somebody that I've always known as Graciela Pareto and assumed because of that that she was Italian. However, that wasn't quite her real name. It was really Engracia Enriqueta Angela Pareto Oms. She was Spanish. She was born in 1889 and she survived till 1973. She made her debut in 1906 in Carmen, not as Carmen, but as Michaela, because her voice was really that of a lyric coloratura, and she was a very fine one. There was also something in her voice which expressed pathos, which only a few singers have. Yet, Although singing with one major singer on record, which you're about to hear, just two years after her debut, somehow her career must have somehow stalled because her later duets are with good singers, but not the best. The exception is this 1908 recording of the last scene of Rigoletto Alasso in Cell with the great king of baritones, Kitarufo. She made two recordings with him. This is one of them. I think you'll find her wonderful and perhaps She's unfairly forgotten. She was on the red label, which meant that the record company, HMV, his master's voice, thought of her as a great singer. But as I said, she never quite made that extra fame that was afforded to people like Tetrazzini or Melba. She, I believe, retired around 1933, which meant that she wasn't working for the last 40 years of her life. Be that as it may, we do have recordings. The frustrating thing is she recorded as late as February 1926. But unfortunately, where she recorded hadn't changed over to the microphone yet, so it's still an acoustic recording. What a pity she came so close. Nevertheless, this is Graciela Pareto in 1908 with Tita Rufo singing Lasso in Cell. Oh, my God. 
I can't believe over all the podcasts that I've done that I've only given you one track of the great Count Basie Orchestra. Now, when I say the great Count Basie Orchestra, Count Basie became, I suppose, most famous in the 50s and 60s, but it was his first orchestra in the late 30s. This is the one that I think everybody quite rightly regards as his really special orchestra. He had an interesting history. He was actually born in Red Bank, New Jersey, and amongst his early friends was Sonny Greer, who became the drummer with the Duke Ellington Orchestra, of course. And he got to do all sorts of things. He wasn't at first the pianist who we remember was playing just a few, but exactly the right note against his big band. That wasn't the way he was. He played proper stride piano and all that stuff in his early days. He toured with black vaudeville shows and at some point he got to Kansas City and he got to be for a while in Walter Page's band and then he got to be in Benny Moten's band. In fact, I've given you a track or two, I think, of Benny Moten with Count Basie on piano. But Benny Moten died in 1935 and to cut a long story short, Count Basie ended up with several of the people who had been in the last of Benny Moten's band added a few others, and by the mid-30s he had this nine-piece, which was sort of playing the blues. He had this wonderful rhythm section, which consisted of Walter Page himself on bass, Freddie Green on guitar, just playing chords, and Joe Jones, the wonderful Joe Jones on drums, and with him on piano it was the dream rhythm section. To this he added Lester Young, one of the great tenor saxophone players, who changed the way people played from the way that Common Hawkins had been playing to a more modern style with a lighter sound. And I think it's true to say that when people play what they call mainstream now, there's more of an influence of Lester Young than probably anyone else to this very day. Then he had a vocalist called Jimmy Rushing, a great big fat guy who sang the blues, and, well, the combination was very, very commercial and wonderful. I'm going to give you one of the band's early tracks, and it features mainly the rhythm section. You hear a little bit of the rest of the band, but mostly it's a feature for Lester Young, and indeed the tune is called Lester Leaps In. It's quite a famous track, but it's from the late 30s, Count Basie. Thank you. 
I'm going to complete this podcast with a mystery performer. I can find nothing about him online or anywhere else. His aim seems to have been Arthur Peel. And just as many, many people used to do impressions of the George Formby we all know, the one with the ukulele, his father, the original George Formby, who died in 1921, was famous enough that people used to imitate him. And I'm fairly certain that this Arthur Peel, whoever he was, was imitating the George Formby that we now don't remember. It's a very good imitation. In fact, it's so good that it's just possible that this is George Formby Sr., moonlighting, recording for a company to which he wasn't signed and using another name so that he could make a bit more money. I don't know. He's very good, whoever this fellow is, but he always seems to sing George Formby songs. This, then, is Arthur Peel. I know that it was recorded in February 1911, but that's all I can tell you about him. If anybody out there knows anything about him and would like to tell me, you can contact me at fat47 at ntlworld.com. So without more ado, here is Arthur Peel singing something called Sequels. A pal of mine had a splendid job. He was Richard Bellringer. He started with a rage if he went upon the stage as a red-nosed comic singer. With a penny worth of rags and his old flat shoes as an extra term, they tried him. But he broke his voice and half his jaw, and the audience, they had spied him. Ha ha, doctor, went in for vocalization. One third, got bird, and now. Doctor, starvation. Now 
my brother Bill once got this chill where he lived was dark and dreary. So he went to bed to rest his head because he felt so weary. In bed at night he felt all right, but when he was awakening, he began to roar, I do feel so, his bones were all aching. Poor Bill felt ill, he slept up in the attic, room damp, took cramps, and now that room, room attic. I met a girl with a Roman nose one night inside the boozer. I gave a little wink, said, will you have a drink? After that, I couldn't lose her. Through a sausage factory, I took her one day by the watch, but then I gripped her. When the sausage man had turned his back into the machine, I gripped her. Alone, alone, she looked so lean and bony. One scream from machine, and now... And as usual, we are left with my track. Before I do so, and I've got time today, I'm going to have a little bit of a moan. I don't know how many of you are listening to this podcast, but I know it's not anywhere near as many as there should be. It really ought to be one of those podcasts that thousands of people listen to. Not because of me, but because of the wonderful exciting music that was recorded between, say, 1900 and 1960. So, please, I've asked this many times, but why not just spend a day doing it? All your email contacts, all the people that you know on Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever you belong to, please tell them about this podcast. If you can't remember erlokin.blogspot.com, just tell them to listen to Erlokin's Gramophone Show. Another thing you could do, if any of you are interested, is of course to buy some of my doubles because I'm always trying to make more space here. In order to do that, you need to email me at spats, S-P-A-T-S, spats47 at ntlworld.com. That's N-T-L-W-O-R-L-D.com. You can also find a list of the records that I've got for sale on the extreme right-hand side of my website, which is erlokin.net, which is spelled E-A-R-L-O-K-I-N dot N-E-T. There's one final thing which really isn't part of this, but I don't know who listens to this, and there may be somebody with a contact. I'm always looking to do something for my career. I'm currently looking for agents to get me work either at home in the UK or even more so abroad and I'm also looking for a label to put out my recordings so if you happen to have any contacts of that sort again please contact me at bats47 at ntlworld.com well having done all of that what am I going to give you today about 18 months ago, I was in the middle of recording a whole CD's worth of Duke Ellington's songs. I don't think anybody has recorded as many of Duke Ellington's songs in one fell swoop since Ella Fitzgerald's epic Ellington songbook recordings of the 50s. So I hope 
these will go down well. Again, I'm looking for a label for them to be on. In the meantime, I'm going to give you one of Duke Ellington's perhaps less known songs. It's called All Too Soon, and it was written originally as part of a show, I believe, and had words written to it by somebody called Sigmund, about whom I know nothing, I'm afraid. It's a beautiful song, though. Wonderful melody. So, this is my arrangement of it, and with that, as always, I bid you a very good au revoir until next month. All too soon we had to part the moment you
as well as I Our love dissolves Another try for we whispered goodbye All too soon Thank you.